Galatians chapter number 6 this evening, and we're going to read just the first 11 verses tonight, uh, or the first 10 verses, excuse me, we're going to do chapter 6 in two parts, we're going to read the first 10 verses, I hope you'll read them with me. The Bible says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now for the past 13 weeks as we've studied through the book of Galatians, I'll remind you once again of the simple outline that we followed. The first uh, two chapters of the book of Galatians are basically personal. Paul is recounting the grace of God in his life, recounting what God has done in him and through him and by him, and uh, all of it for God's glory. The next two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, are basically doctrinal in their application, meaning that, uh, you know, in the first two chapters, Paul talks about the grace of God in his life. In the next two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, he talks about the grace of God in God's dealings with mankind. We saw how that grace has always been the means, that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The law was not given to justify mankind, but to show him through his lack of obedience to it, his need of Jesus Christ, to lead him uh, to Jesus Christ. The law was the schoolmaster, the law was not the savior, was never intended to be. And in the last two chapters, when we studied chapter number five in the past two weeks, we see the grace of God in our lives. Now what I mean by that is this. This is the practical application of grace. Paul is moving beyond the initial experience of grace that the sinner has when he sees himself lost and undone, calls upon Christ who forgives him, redeems him, saves him from his sin, and is moving into the experience of our everyday life living as a Christian. Let me say to you tonight that the only way you can live as a Christian is by grace. We don't start this thing out by grace and then finish it by works. We don't start it out in the Spirit and finish it through the flesh. We made a point last week to mention this truth and this fact, that you can do the right thing in the wrong energy and for the wrong reason and still be wrong. And in fact, many of the things that the Pharisees did in the New Testament were good things. They weren't bad things. And yet Christ looked at them and called them vipers, serpents. He looked at them and called them whited sepulchers, said you're beautiful and washed on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. 
Or could we maybe put it this way? You've got a form of godliness, but you've denied the power thereof. And that power is the Holy Spirit of God. He's the one that enables us and equips us to live like Jesus Christ. We can't do it through imitation. We can only do it through submission, through surrender. I think there's a lot of confusion in modern-day Christianity. And keep in mind, I mean, we, we spend a lot of weeks hammering on salvation by grace and, you know, picking on the charismatics and the Catholics and uh, all those that believe they lose their salvation. Uh, we spend a lot, a, a lot of time really hammering that home. And I think that was needful. I think it was correct, scripturally correct. I believe it was in proper church order to do so. I believe we're called and commanded to do so. Uh, we're to rebuke openly of them that sin openly before all that others may fear. I believe that was right to do. But now we're hitting where it hits home. Because the truth is, there's lots of folks that believe right, and they go to the right kind of church, and they carry the right kind of Bible, and they look the right kind of way, and they talk the right kind of way, and they smell the right kind of way. But if you could look into the depths of their heart, you'd find that they are not uh, surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God. They're just, they're just playing the game. They're just imitating they're just replicating what they've seen to the best of their ability. They have that form of godliness. When you look upon them, they look just like anybody else. They've got a form of godliness, but the power is not present there. And so Paul has been speaking in chapter number 5 about the application of grace in the life of the believer in his personal walk. Or we're not put it this way, grace in our relationship with God. And the only way to have the right relationship with God is through grace, not just at the point of salvation, but all through our lives. Paul shows us that grace and that the Spirit of God is the means of sanctification, not through striving through our own cunning and ability and will, but through surrender uh, to the leading of the Holy Spirit in the everyday of our lives. But now Paul has moved beyond that, and in chapter number 6, shortly before he gives his salutation, shortly before he says a few closing words, he wants to talk to us about not just grace in our relationship with God, but grace in our relationship with one another. Can I say to you tonight that the church would be greatly benefited if we learned to deal with one another in grace? Now, grace does not mean compromise. Grace does not mean uh, an ignoring of sin or a justifying of sin. That's not what grace is. In fact, grace is the exact opposite. A sinner cannot partake in grace until he acknowledges his sin. He cannot come to Calvary and be born again until he recognizes himself as a sinner. We preached on it yesterday morning. The soldiers at the cross uh, and the first group that were gambling met the cross with complacency. And the man that stabbed Christ in the side met the cross with contempt. But then there was that centurion that after the veil was rent and the darkness had departed and it is finished had been cried and the rocks had rent and the graves had burst open. Through all that, he was watching Jesus. And they're looking at the sun of God, uh, he began to greatly fear. Well, why did he greatly fear? Because it dawned on him, hey, I was the one that nailed him to the cross. I was the one that put him up there. What a picture of the sinner when he comes to acknowledge it was me that put him up there. It was my sins that nailed him to that cross. So before a sinner can ever partake in grace, he's got to acknowledge his, his sinfulness, his unrighteousness. So dealing with grace with one another is not a skirting of the issue of sin or an ignoring of the issue of sin, but it's rather this. What will we do when sin is present? Now stop and think about this for a moment. I'm going to trust the Holy Ghost to lead me as I say what I'm about to say because I have no intention of saying it. 
But think about what God did when we had sinned. God would have been fully justified in sending every one of us to hell. It's what we deserve. God didn't have to send Christ to become God. God was already God. If He had never sent His Son to die for our sins, He would have still been God. He would have still been holy. He would have still been righteous. You see, it was fully within His right to deal with us in wrath. But His love moved Him to deal with us in grace. So we find that grace causes us to choose the better and the more effectual option. Grace causes us to live not just within our rights, but within what God has done for us and what God will enable us to do in the lives of others. So grace really deals with how we deal with sin. God could have condemned every one of us. We were condemned already and sent us to hell. But instead, because He loved us, He chose to redeem us. Or can I use this word only because it's found in verse number 1, to restore mankind. Now, I understand there's some theological, you know, uh, difficulties there. I understand we've got something greater than Adam. Adam was in innocence. We're justified. You know, I'm aware of that. But there is a Bible word, and it's the word reconciliation. Man had had fellowship with God. Through his own choice, he had sinned and fallen. And through uh, the first Adam, all men died. But through the second Adam, all men can be made alive if they'll only come to him. We can be reconciled unto God. Now, that's how grace deals with sin. Grace doesn't just dismiss sin. Grace doesn't hide sin. Grace deals with sin, but deals with it in, with the restoration of the sinner as the ultimate view and desire of the person bestowing grace. We find that Paul deals with grace in our relationship with others in several different ways. But I find it fascinating that the first way that he deals with grace in our relationships with one another is in the restoration of a fallen brother or sister. Let me say to you that until you get to the place where you're willing to forgive, you won't get very far in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, there's lots of folks that are are willing to be good to people that will be good to them. But that's not the love of Christ. The Bible says God commended His love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, The book of Ephesians says that at one time we were enemies, we were aliens, we were alienated from the cross of Christ, from the family of God. And in that state, God chose to send His Son to die for us. And so beginning with what is really the, the pivotal example and the pivotal expression of the grace of God, Paul begins to deal with how we deal with one another. And I'm going to do my best to say everything about, uh, not to say everything, but to say something about everything that's found in here. Uh, we'll see what the Lord will let us do. Notice the first word Paul uses, brethren. Brethren. Why did Paul use that word? I think Paul used that word because he wanted to remind them of the status, both of the one that had not fallen and of the one that had fallen. We need to understand, I mean, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. There's sometimes that people make mistakes that do disqualify them. I'm aware of that. Disqualify them from areas of ministry. Disqualify them uh, from things that... I'll give you an example. If you have a worker in your church that is uh, found guilty of some kind of inappropriate behavior with, with children, he may ask the forgiveness of God. God may forgive him. But I don't think God expects us to put him over the children's church. I mean, common sense would tell you that. 
And uh, so I, I'm aware people do things wrong, and not just those things. I mean, I, I'm aware that the person that, uh, that is, has been through several failed marriages is probably not the person that needs to be heading up the marriage conference, you know. I, I'm aware that, that people who may have made some mistakes with their children probably ought not be the experts on raising children. I don't say that from a point of judgmentalness. We all, but by the grace of God, would be in those situations. But I'm just merely saying that there are some things that disqualifies from areas of ministry. Paul is not talking about that in this passage. He's talking about fellowship. He's talking about a a person having a place in church, having a seat there on Sunday morning, having a fellowship and a warm handshake and a love and a regard from those that are with him. And let me say this, no matter what mistake you make, if you've been born again, you're still a brother or a sister. We better get that through our heads. Because you're going to have folks that's going to make mistakes. You don't have folks that's going to mess up and do things wrong. And it's very easy from our high horse to really look down judgmentally. And, you know, maybe, maybe they do need to be rebuked. Maybe they do need something brought to their attention. But you better remember that at the end of the day, they are still your brother or your sister. You might as well go ahead and learn to love them. You're going to spend all of eternity with them. Amen? That's just the reality of things. And we better grow comfortable with that thought. That they're still a child of God, even though they may have messed up. And though it may mean there are some areas that they've exempted themselves from as far as what they would like to do or or wish to be a part of, uh, we still need to understand that they're still our brother or sister in Jesus Christ. So I believe with that thought in mind, Paul begins before he says anything else that says, Brethren, brethren, remember at all times that you're brethren. Remember when your church family irritates you. Oh, your church family irritates you sometimes, don't they? Sure they do. Sure they do. What did the old songwriter say? He said, to dwell above with saints in love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints, I know that's a different story, you know? Yeah, your church family irritates you. Sure they do. Just as your, as your natural family irritates you. And those times when it gets tense, when there's friction, when it's irritating, we need to keep in mind they're still our brethren. Christ still died for them. God still loves them. They're still accepted in the beloved. So who are we to treat them as less than beloved? Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one with the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Let me point out, too, that the brother that is the example here is someone that has been overtaken in a fault. There is a difference between willful, deliberate, decisive sin that a person enters into and folks that succumb to moments of temptation. Now, I'm not saying that the brother that has lived in willful, deliberate sin can't be forgiven and restored, but that's not who Paul's talking about here. Paul is speaking about those that have sinned, that have done unrighteously, and have been overtaken. Uh, the picture is almost like floodwaters, just overwhelming you, or like a, a military force uh, that is vastly outnumbering you, overtaking you. Paul says those folks that have fallen and been overtaken, how do we deal with them? What is to be our approach with them? Let me say to you that if you've never fallen, well, first off, you're probably a liar. <laughs> but secondly, if you never have, your times are coming. We're to take heed when we think we stand. That's the exact time that we're going to fall. You may have not made the mistake someone else made, but you've made your own share. Let me say this. We have a tendency. We have a little book that we keep, don't we? 
We have a little book that we keep of what sins we think are acceptable and what sins we think are not. Now, you won't ever find this. You can dig through the shelves in our church and you won't find a copy of this book. You can go to my home and you won't find a copy of it on my bookshelves. You go to your home and you won't find a copy of it. Oh, but if we could put the thoughts that go through our mind on paper, we'd find there's a little book we've all written of things we think are acceptable, things that we think aren't, sins we think are no big deal, and sins that we find abhorrent. And let me say that I do believe in degrees of sin. I'm not dismissing that. But I feel like sometimes God's opinion of those degrees of sin is a little bit different than ours. Can I give you an Old Testament verse? I may just preach. Who knows? We may go, go 16 weeks, amen? But can I just give you an example? The Bible says that only by pride cometh contention. That pride is one of those seven sins mentioned in the book of Proverbs. That the Lord hateth, hateth a proud look. Now I'd say most of us have been guilty of pride. God doesn't say about every single sin, pointing it out individually, that He hates it. Now, we know that God hates all sin. We're aware of that. But it means something that God has chosen certain sins in the Word of God to say, I hate that sin. That sin is an abomination. You know what that means? That means it turns the stomach of God. Now, most of us have been guilty of pride at some time. Oh, it may not be pride in ourselves. Maybe pride in our children. Maybe pride in our spouse. Maybe pride in our church. Let me say to you that if this church is anything, it's only that because of Jesus Christ. I think we've got some wonderful people around here. Do you know why they're wonderful? Because of Jesus Christ. I think, I, I think occasionally the preacher gets up and preaches a sermon that, that is at least a B-. minus. And you know when that happens? It's because of Jesus Christ. Our choir blessed my heart Sunday morning because of Jesus Christ. See, any and everything that we are, it's only due to Him and His name. But sometimes, you know, we get a little prideful. And I understand every crow thinks his crow's the blackest. I know that's the way we're built. I understand that. But we better be careful lest we give glory someplace that it's not due. Because all glory is due unto Him. All of it's due unto Him. So we've got this little book, you know. And Paul says, if a man be overtaken, overwhelmed in a fault... Let me say that I think also implied in this verse, uh, notice it says a fault. I think that's important. I don't think that, that Paul is dismissing the fact that this is sin. But I think he is emphasizing the fact that, that this is something this brother was susceptible to. You know that we find ourselves much more judgmental over the sins that we're not susceptible to than we do over the sins that we are susceptible to. Don't you think that's true? There are certain sins that just don't tempt me. Honestly, they don't bother me. They may bother you. There may be certain sins that bother me that don't bother you. But Paul says, just keep in mind that this brother, he was overtaken in a fault. There's some fault here. There's some blame here. But understand that he was taken at his weak point. And it may not be a weak point for you, but for him it was a weak point. I'm just talking about how we deal in grace tonight. You see, grace did not see us as enemies. Grace saw us as sinners. Isn't that true? Grace did not see us as, uh, as enemies. Grace saw us as weaklings. Grace saw us as unable and incapable. Grace saw us as not having the ability to do that which was right, as being helpless and hopeless. That's how grace saw us. 
And I think it would be a good lesson for all of us when a person has done wrong to look at them and see ourselves as sinners, weak, helpless, and to see them as just but, but flesh and bone, but dust, and having fallen to this sin. I think it's important that we uh, notice that this man has to be willing to be restored. You can't restore someone that's unwilling to be restored. That tells me that this verse is not applying to those that are defiant in their sin. There's some folks that you can't help because they're not willing to acknowledge they did anything wrong. They can't be restored because they don't believe they need to be restored. But the picture of the person here is a man that is keenly aware that he's fallen, that he's made a mistake, that he has done wrong. He's been overtaken. You don't ever get overtaken except you're aware of it. Isn't that right? I mean, a, a military force, you may not know you're overtaken before it happens, but sure enough, when it happens, you'll know that you're overtaken. And this man, he's overtaken. He's fallen. He's done wrong. What does grace do with such a man? Grace restores him. But grace can only be active in the life of those that are spiritual. It doesn't say you which are carnal. It says you which are spiritual. I think that as we read this passage, we must keep in mind the context of this entire book. You see, these Galatians are beginning through the reading of this letter to become keenly aware of those that have fallen into the trap of legalism. I think it's interesting that probably the fall and the sin that Paul is talking about is probably not the one that is so evident and apparent. It's probably not the one that is so grotesque and so vile. But probably the context of what Paul is dealing with here is rather those that have been ensnared in legalism. Not those that, that fell to such a low depth and did so defiantly, but rather those that puffed themselves up to a height that they had not spiritually and, and in a realistic way attained and, and maintained themselves there and said, this is who and what I am. And now, just as God did for Paul when he cast him off his high horse, now Paul's doing for them. He's kicking them off their high horse. And with penitent hearts, they're saying, what a fool I've been. Paul says, you need to restore people like that. Those that are aware that they've sinned, that they've done wrong. Those that did not march out to act deliberately and defiantly. But this man that, that was overtaken, that made a mistake. That sinned, but he didn't set out to sin. It overtook him. If you're spiritual, you'll deal with him the way God deals with him. Can I serve notice on you tonight? You no more deserve the forgiveness of God after you've been born again than you deserved it before you was born again. You no more deserve for God to forgive you now than you did before you got saved. Your sin is just as wicked now as it was before you got saved. When you do wrong and when I do wrong and we come to the throne room of what? Grace? And we say, Lord, I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm a poor sinner. And I failed you, Lord. Please forgive me of what I've done wrong. That sin's just as vile as the sin that would have sent you to hell. And we need to be consciously aware, how does God deal with us? If we'll confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice it says, such an one in the spirit of meekness. I just contemplated on that word meekness a little while today. You know, you know what meekness is, don't you? Meekness is power kept in check by the Holy Ghost. That's what meekness is. The Bible says of Moses in the Old Testament that he was the meekest man ever to walk the face of the earth. 
Do you realize that Moses at any given time, and listen, you may not believe this, but when I read the Bible, I see it plain as day. Moses had enough power and influence with God. He could have prayed, and God would have struck every Israelite dead. In fact, there were times God was going to do it, but the intercession of Moses kept God from doing it. Think of the power that Moses had. Moses could have struck dead over a million people. And yet, how did he treat him? He said, oh Lord, if you blot their name out, go ahead and blot my name out. That's meekness. Meekness. Can I give you another picture of meekness? You remember there in the Garden of Gethsemane? Judas came leading a band of soldiers. And when they approached unto Jesus, they said, He said, Who seeks you? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And when he said, I am, the power of God threw that entire army back. And yet, he was led as a lamb, as a sheep to the shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth, led as a lamb to the slaughter. No man took his life from him, but he laid it down. That's meekness. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have spoken a single divine word and destroyed every one of them. But meekness and grace and love motivated him to submit himself to do not that which was his right, because it was his right to destroy every one of them. That was the extent of his authority and his right. All judgment is delivered up under the, under the Son. All power and authority is given unto Him. The extent of His right was He could have destroyed every single one of them. But He didn't operate in the extent of His right. He operated in that which was effectual to redeem and to restore. That's what grace does in our relationship with one another. You see, and I don't even know, I, I'm going to trust the Holy Ghost to help me here. There's times when we have every right to tear into someone over the way they're behaving. I found this as a pastor. Can I, can I let you in on a little hint? Some of, these, some of y'all are, are, are our folks here, and so I'm not saying it for me, but those of you all that, are, that, that go to church other places and you've got a pastor, can I just let you in on a little hint? A little secret here. Do you know that a pastor, at any given time, is either a coward or a dictator, depending on who you ask? You see, if you ask a crowd that wanted him to smite someone and he didn't, he's a coward. If you ask the crowd that wanted him to keep quiet and he didn't, he's a dictator. And all the while, a pastor has to learn how to walk separated only unto the Lord and to be obedient to Him in that process. See, some folks want you to act in the extent of your right. And there's times that you have every right Tear into someone over the way that they behave. And can I ask you something? Will that restore them? Will that restore them? I mean, there's times that's what folks need. There are. But there's other times when you don't do anything but indulge your flesh by doing that. There's times. Did you know that your pastor gets irritated with folks just like you do sometimes? You didn't know that. I know. I'm letting you in on it. You know? I'm telling my, all the secrets, man. I'm like the loudmouth magician. I'm going to have pastors calling me saying, why'd you tell my people that? Sometimes he gets irritated with folks too. Just like you do. And sometimes, like James and John, he wants to look to the Lord and say, Lord, just call down fire on him like you did for Elijah. But you know what the Lord says? The Lord says, you know not what you ask. 
or the spirit that you ask it with. You see, meekness restrains those that have the right and restores those that have no right. Meekness is those when you have that right and that authority, and probably no one would even blame you, but because you want to see them restored, not removed, you treat them with grace, with love, with kindness. Times when they've worn out your patience, times when you've given them every benefit of every doubt, and they've took advantage of it. Just as we've done with Jesus Christ, grace says, I'll forgive them again. I'll forgive them again. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I believe this is twofold. I believe one of the things that's being spoken of here is Paul is saying you better consider yourself because but for the grace of God, you would be in their shoes. It would startle us if we knew that we were capable of given the right circumstances and the right temptations. I never murder a man, said David. I never cheat on my, my spouse. I never take another man's wife, said David, a man after God's own heart. I think we ought to consider ourselves. But then I think there's a twofold application here. Not just considering ourselves, because we could be in that place, but also considering ourselves, because there's a temptation to haughtiness that comes with that spirit of, of censorship that we have sometimes towards people. Understand that you can be righteously indignant, or sometimes you can just be indignant. Sometimes we use our liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, and sometimes we're using every scripture we can think of to justify our attitude in the flesh. I see it all the time. Folks that are, that are scripturally correct and are spiritually wrong. Isn't that what Paul's been talking about? Form of godliness, denying the power of that. Scripturally right, but spiritually incorrect. There is something to be said for the Spirit in which, we, in, in which we deal with people. When I say Spirit, I don't mean the Holy Spirit. And when I say Spirit, I don't mean that part of us that's been quickened and awakened. But I mean our attitude, our disposition, the ugliness that sometimes we treat folks with. Man, I'm guilty. I don't know if you are. If you're not, you're welcome. Just turn the hearing aid off and I'll preach at me for a second. Because I'm guilty of it. We ought to consider ourselves because it's awful easy to fall in that ditch. But we're sitting up on our high horse. We're right about everything, you know, because we never make mistakes. But we find that our attitude of pride, which the Lord hates, can interfere with our walk with Him. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Well, well I've, I've whipped on you long enough. We'll move on. Verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens, so fulfill. Now, this is interesting. Isn't it interesting this would pop up in, in the book of Galatians? This is a book that almost every usage of the word law has been negative. And yet now, he says, bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. How fascinating that throughout all this book, he's been showing us the inferiority of the law. But now he shows us a higher law. I think the reason that he used this word, I might be wrong. Paul might correct me one day and... He can correct me any time. But I kind of have a feeling that the reason he uses this word law is because of the association it has with the group of people he's writing to. These were a group of people that had deified the Old Testament law. 
These were a group of people that had elevated the Old Testament law to a place of preeminence above Jesus Christ and above the cross of Calvary. And all they could see was law, law, law. And Paul says, okay, let's talk about the law. What's the law of Christ? We know what a law is, don't we? It's a rule or a standard. We used to, whenever we, I was working uh, in a secular job, and most of you all have been in jobs like this, we had what we call SOPs. What's that? Standard Operating Procedure. What was Christ's Standard Operating Procedure? He said, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. You know why he said that? Uh, he was saying that. He was saying, you take my yoke. I'll take your yoke. You take the burden that it is to be the Immaculate Son of God, and I'll take your yoke as a poor, helpless sinner. You take who and what I am, and I'll take who and what you are. I'll be made sin for you that you may it might be made the righteousness of God in me. And you find this, this is the pattern all through the Word of God. Whenever there was a burden in the Gospels, a burden to be borne, it was the shoulders of Jesus Christ that bore them. All through, if there was ever a, 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 a pressure to be put upon anyone, he took it upon himself. This is the law of Christ. This is the standard. Let me just give a word of exhortation here, and this don't have a whole lot to do with it, but the Lord reminded me of it, so I'm going to remind you. There's a reason the Bible says, casting all your care upon him, for he cared for you. It says in verse number 5, for every man shall bear his own burden. Now, I believe that that, that truth has two sides to it. One is that is a natural truth. You're always going to have to deal with your problems. But I think when we couple that with what Peter said, casting all your care, all your care upon him, let me say that I don't think you can bear anyone else's burdens if you're still bearing your burdens. You can't be a help to others unless you're walking with Christ. And as long as you've got your burden on your shoulders, you can't bear anyone else's. You need to put your burden on him so that you can bear someone else's. This is the law. This is the standard. This is our attitude. You know, our attitude towards one another ought to be, how can I help lighten the load for another believer? How can I help be a help to them? What can I do to try to encourage them today? Well, that word encouragement, we don't talk about that a lot. But we ought to learn to be an encouragement to each other. The words that we say, the things that we say, do they discourage or do they encourage? I know some folks that would have fit in just right in the wilderness wanderings. All they do is complain. You know, you know a few of them? Maybe you've been one of them. I have. You can't help anyone while you're griping and complaining. All you're going to do is discourage them. But if you learn to put your burdens on Jesus Christ, maybe you can reach over and pull one off of somebody else and say, let me, pray, let me pray with you. Let me encourage you. Let me help you a little bit. Bear you one another's burdens. So fulfill the law of Christ. If they could just take that zeal that they had devoted to being zealous under the Old Testament law and transfer that zeal into being uh, devoted to the law of Christ, what a difference it would make in their church. What a difference it could make in your church, in my church, if we could learn to take the, the, the pettiness, the arguing, the complaining, the bickering, the pulling out of them. And if we could learn to put that away and look towards one another and say, how can I be a help to you today? How can I be a blessing to you today? We'd be amazed what it would do for our church.
Oh, we may not be busting out the seams with people, but I promise you this, the folks we do have would love each other a lot more. They'd love each other a lot more. One of the greatest blessings to my heart as a pastor is times when I come over here on a Sunday night and we have visitors, we had a whole heaping boat. I don't even know where they came from yesterday. A bunch of them. I thought they was getting ready to take over or something. I thought, thought maybe they'd come in and shut me down, you know. And to come over on a Sunday night and to see a church member sitting and trying to reach out to them and be a help and a blessing to them. You know what you're doing when you do that? You're taking one of my burdens and you're pulling that on you. It blesses me. I've been really proud of our young adults in our church. One of the things I've tried to instill in them is an attitude of discipleship. When you get another young couple in, our young couples ought to make it a point uh, to pick them out and try to help them in their walk with Christ and in their marriage and, and in their life. That's a blessing to me as a pastor. Why? They're bearing one of my burdens. By the same token, you're going to find people all around you have burdens, things that are their responsibility, hurts and heartaches that you know nothing about. But if we take a moment to be sensitive to the Holy Ghost... You know, there's been times folks have come up to me and said, can I just pray with you? And they had no clue what was going on in my life, but I couldn't have needed it more than I needed it at that moment. What happened? The Holy Ghost spoke to their heart and said, bear that man's burden. Be a help to them. We're talking about walking in the Spirit, aren't we? In chapter number 5, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We've talked about it in our relationship with God. What about walking in the Spirit in our relationship with each other? We need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit so that we can be a help. It says in verse 3, For if a man think himself to be something and he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. I think when Paul says, when he is nothing, uh, Paul is pointing his finger at you and me. We're nothing. I don't think what Paul is saying here is, you know, there, there's, there's folks in the church that are somebodies and folks that are nobodies, and if you get one of these nobodies that thinks he's a somebody, you, you just take him down a peg or two. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, when a, if a man think of himself to be something when he is nothing, and all of us, we're just nothing, he deceived himself. Therefore, for you and for me, any time we think us to be something, we've deceived ourselves. I'll tell you exactly what I... Can I tell you the height and the pinnacle of who Toby Webber is? Can I tell you tonight? I am a justified, born-again, accepted in the beloved child of God. And that has happened only because of the cross of Calvary. I can boast in nothing. I can glory in nothing except the cross of Christ. I'm not anything. I'll never be anything. And anything that's ever worth saying something about, that's, that's nothing of me, that's everything of Him. Have I tied your brain in knots yet? You're nothing. I'm nothing. I don't sell books, but that's what the book says. That doesn't sell New York Times bestsellers. That's not your best life now. But that's Bible. You're nothing, and I'm nothing. When we think ourselves to be something, we deceive ourselves. I sense a tinge of sarcasm in verse 4. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. You know, Paul spoke this way before. When he, he talked, I believe it was the book of Second Corinthians, and he said that, that anything that we've received, we've received from the Lord. It's all of the Lord. No man lives unto himself, no man dieth unto himself. 
anything that we receive, we receive from the Lord, so there's no boasting. And I, I kind of think what Paul is saying here is, if a man thinks himself to be something, let him first prove his own work. Go ahead, show me where you're sinless. Show me where you've done it on your own. There's not a one of us. But there's not a one of us that can boast in anything. Let him prove his own work. Then he'll have rejoicing in himself and not in another. No, the truth of the matter is, tonight, I can boast in nothing but Jesus Christ. And, and next to him, do you know what I can boast in? I can boast in the church family that prays for me. I can boast in my wife that loves me, stands behind me and beside me, sometimes in front of me to keep me from making a mistake. I can boast in a godly heritage, parents that love me and took me to church. I can boast in church folks that love me and support me. You see, let a man prove his own work. When I start trying to pour on all the things Toby Webber's done, it gets pretty slim. And there's a lot of mistakes that have accounting for to be given. Now let him first prove his own worth, and then he'll have rejoicing in himself alone. Yeah, I think what Paul is saying is if we really look at this thing, we'll find that the Lord has given us folks that have helped us along the way. None of us have done this. Uh, anything that we are, we've not done it on our own. We've done it by the grace of God and by the help of those that are around us. So we have no reason to rejoice in ourselves alone, but in others. Look at the next verse. That him that is... Uh, verse 5, excuse me, for every man shall bear his own burden. I've said a word about that. I'll not say anything just yet about it, maybe in a moment. Verse 6, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. I believe this is both a verse of church order and also a practical application of grace as it relates to ministry. Really, the picture I see here is that of believers working together. There, I believe, was in some ways a much more defined roles in the New Testament church at this time, and in some ways less defined roles. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, I think at this time people were more keenly aware of the spiritual gifts that God had blessed them with. Uh, folks knew whether they had gift of faith or gift of teaching and things of that sort. Nowadays, we just don't talk about that stuff much. I guess it's because we don't walk in the Spirit enough to really know what our spiritual gifts are. So in some ways, people were keenly aware and things were more compartmentalized. In other ways, I think it was less so in that I think a lot of people bore the burden of teaching and of helping one another and of encouraging one another. I think we have very much fallen into a structure where there's the pastor and then there's everyone else. And, uh, you know, I think that can be a dangerous spot that we find ourselves in. But I think really the truth of what Paul is conveying here is the notion of us as believers, the man that is taught in the Word, he ought to take that which God has blessed him with and try to be a help to the man that's teaching in all good things. Here's another picture of bearing one another's burdens. If God's blessed you with something, you ought to try to be a blessing to somebody else with it. That man that, is, that uh, teacheth all in all good things, and, and let me say this, it's not saying he's a good teacher in all things. He just teacheth in all good things. So when I say that I teacheth in all good things, I'm not saying I'm a good teacher, but I, but I do teacheth in all good things, if I use some poor uh, English. And uh, let me say that I know the burden of teaching. I know what it's like. There are times it's difficult. I will say this as a pastor. You'd be amazed the places that God has birthed sermons in my heart and mind from times when someone has just said something incidentally or accidentally 
God has used that word of truth in my heart and life, and something's been communicated to me that God has percolated and, and, and grown and advanced in my heart and life, and they have made my load a little bit easier. By the same token, you ought to look around and try to see how you can be a blessing to someone else. You know, there's some folks that God has just given them a gift to speak a word, uh, you know, uh, like, like frames of gold, like silver apples. They can just say something that helps and encourages someone. You ought to use that. There's other folks that just have an ability to trust God almost in any situation. You've met folks like that. I have. You or I, we'd be scrambling around trying to figure out what we was going to do, but they just trusted God. They ought to use that to encourage someone else to have faith. God may have blessed you with, with some sort of skill or ability, some sort of trait. There's some folks good with their hands, good with their minds. I've got hands, I ain't got much of a mind. You ought to use that to be a blessing and a help. God blesses some folks financially. You ought to be a help to someone financially. I think the picture here is of taking what God's blessed us with and being a help to one another. You know, that's what grace does. What did God say to Paul? My grace is sufficient for thee. You'd be amazed in a group of believers. You can always find a way to do the work and the will of God in a group of believers. Uh, a church may not have a whole lot of money, may not have a whole lot of talent, may not have a whole lot of good-looking people. You know, I won't say whether that's us or not, but, but you'd be amazed what a church can accomplish when they're willing to work together in grace to help one another and to be a blessing. Not thinking of themselves, but thinking of one another. Look at the next verse. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to his spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. Now again, context, context, context. A good rule of thumb as you read your Bible is context is king. Always look at what the context says. We think of this passage... And we think of it in the notion, I believe this is appropriate. We think of it in the notion of saying that if I do spiritual things, I'll get spiritual rewards. If I do fleshly things, I'll have heartache. And sometimes we compartmentalize these verses into our relationship with God. But Paul's not talking about our relationship with God. He's talking about our relationship with one another. And living and exercising grace in the lives of others. And so it's very interesting that he should say this, They that sow in the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Can I say to you that there's lots of folks, you know the Bible says, He that hath friends must show himself friendly. And the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. There's some folks that have found themselves all alone in their Christian walk. And it's because they've lived their whole life sowing to the flesh in the way they treat other people. If you, if you treat people in the flesh, don't be surprised when you reap corruption. When you reap misery and sorrow and heartache, don't be surprised about that. Can I say by the same token, when you reap in the Spirit, when you treat people through obedience to the Holy Spirit of God in a way that glorifies Jesus Christ, you know what you'll find? You'll gain more spiritual blessing out of that than you could ever imagine. If you'll treat people well and treat them like Christ, You'd be amazed how many spiritual friends you'll have and how much spiritual help you'll get. I think a lot of people are, are literally starving to death spiritually. And they blame it on a church or a pastor or they blame it on a movement or a denomination. But at the end of the day, it's because of the way that they live their lives. They've not got anyone to encourage them because they've spent their whole life discouraging folks. They've not got anyone to pray for them because they've spent their whole life complaining instead of praying. <laughs> They, they, they've run off 
every friend that they've had. And now they're left with nothing. Oh, I know, I know there's a spiritual truth here. But you see, you know that spiritual truth. You know that if you live in sin, you're going to reap heartache. You know that if you be obedient to the Lord, you're going to have spiritual blessings. I want to tell you something that, that's, that's going to help you that you don't hear every day. And that's that if, if you're not merciful, nobody's going to show you mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And if you don't learn how to be good to people, you're not going to have very many people around to be good to you, to be a help to you. Verse number 9 says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. This is both an encouragement and a warning. It doesn't say, for in due season we shall reap good things. And I think that's implied by the fact that it says, well-doing. But I think we also need to take it as the warning and exhortation that it is, that we will reap what we sow. But let me say this, there's times when it is a wearisome thing being good to folks. You ever had somebody that had worn your patience then? No, you never had anyone like that. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Doing right, doing good by one another and to one another. We will reap in due season. It's in due season. We could talk about the, the, uh, the theological implications of that phrase, due season. You know, I think there is an application that reflects the judgment seat of Christ. I think there is an application that refers to millennial reign when all things are set straight and made right and where the desert, uh, you know, rose blooms in the desert and the streams run out in the desert. I think there is a theological application there. But can I just apply it to how we deal with one another? There's going to be times you're going to be good to people that ain't very good to you. And they may never be good to you, but you know, you'll find that God will give you someone else along your path that will be good to you when you want good to them. Man, I've had tons of people in my life that have helped me along the way. And I never did a thing for them. I never did a thing for them. But God just sent them my way when I needed them. And I'm thoroughly convinced. I don't believe in karma. I believe in Christ. <laughs> And I thoroughly believe that it's been times that God has helped me to deal in grace with someone that wasn't dealing very gracefully with me. They may never do right by you, but God will send someone that will. And God will help you and give you the strength that you need. Look at verse number 10, and we'll close with this. As we have therefore opportunity. There's that word therefore again. Pay attention to the wherefores and the therefores in your Bible. I know that all these new Bible folks tell you you don't need to pay no attention to the these, the thous, the shalls, the shan't, the wherefores, the therefores, but God gave them for a reason. Therefore, as we have therefore opportunity, that connects the word opportunity to the verse prior. And it tells me this, it gives me a reason for me doing good to other people, because we reap what we sow. But then it also tells me that if it's the will of God that I do good to other people, God's going to give me opportunities to exercise His will. God will put people in your pathway that you and you alone can help, that you and you alone can encourage. I, I tremble when I think of all the missed opportunities I'm going to have to own up to, to the judgment seat of Christ, because of the little issues and problems that I was dealing with and the little selfishness and pettiness that I let infect my life at times. As we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good unto all men. All men. Everybody likes to emphasize the next phrase, and we're going to say a word about it in a second. 
But I don't think we need to dismiss this phrase, all men. Do good unto all men. Not just the brethren. Do good unto all men. I believe when it says do good, it's reflecting this attitude of exercising grace. I believe we ought to deal in grace, not just towards those that are saved, but towards those that are lost. After all, when God showed you grace, were you saved or lost? You're going to find that you will have a lot better witness if you'll treat people well than you will if you don't. Let me let you in on a little secret. People don't care about your Jesus if they don't like you. Now, I understand there's going to be people that, that are going to be offended at the cross of Christ. There's going to be people that are going to be offended at the sin that we take. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of that. But if we're to be honest, we'd have to admit that those people in our everyday interactions with folks, those people are relatively few. Most of the people that have a problem with our Christ really have a problem with our Christianity. That's my experience anyway. Oh, it may just be a crutch and an excuse for him. Say, preacher, what do I do? Don't give him a crutch or an excuse. Treat him well. Be good to him. Anybody will tell you, and I've been guilty of this at times, and I know all these folks in here flush with money, you've never done this, but I've been guilty of it at times. Do you know that waiters and waitresses will tell you that Sunday afternoon is the worst time to work? Because Christians are such poor tippers. Listen, God help you if you slap that gospel track down with a 50-cent tip on your $30 check. It'd be better if you just kept it in your pocket or in your purse. It's just a poor testimony. Do good unto all men. You'd be amazed how far that your Christ can get in people's lives if your Christianity is the right way. You'd be amazed how folks will listen to you if you treat them well, treat them good. We like to play the martyr, all of us. We always like to feel like people ain't getting saved because they're so offended at us uh, because of the cross of Christ. And that's true sometimes. I'm not saying that's never true. That's true sometimes. Sometimes they're not offended at Christ. They're just offended at us. Our attitude or our disposition. Now, I'm not saying if, you, if you're a big tipper, you're going to win a bunch of people to the Lord. <laughs> But I am saying that it certainly don't help your testimony when you go out of your way to do good to one another. Can I tell you something that, that shamed me? I'm being honest now. It shamed me. And I'm getting ready to close. Don't get nervous. But but it's confession time. You ain't a Catholic priest, and I'm not obligated to do this, but I'm, I'm going to confess to you anyway. You know, this past week, some of y'all saw it, I, I had a problem out of my lawn mowing. My neighbor came over and mowed my yard. I, my neighbor claims to be saved. I don't know enough about his life to know one way or the other. But I looked at him. I tried to give him a little money, and he wouldn't take it. And I said, man, I feel bad. I've ne- I feel like I, I've not been the neighborly neighbor that I ought to be. Now, I've never kicked a rock through his window. <laughs> you know, I, I've never spray-painted his car. But God did deal with me in that I've not done all that I could to reach out and to be a help to him and try to be a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here was a man that may be saved, may be lost, I don't know, doing good unto me. Now, isn't that backwards? The world doing good unto us rather than us doing good unto all men. You'd be amazed, you'd be amazed what kind of time you can make with folks giving them the gospel if they know you love them. 
Do they know that you care um, care for them? If they know that you're not just trying to be good to them to get them to come to church, you're being good to them because you love them, because you care about them. Last phrase, especially, especially under them who are the household of faith. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this one simple thought. You know, most folks treat the church family worse than they would a total stranger. Most folks treat their spouse worse than they would a total stranger. Most folks will say things to their spouse that they'd never say to a total stranger. Ugly things, harmful and hurtful and dangerous things. And by the same token, most folks will sooner bicker with their church family than they will with a total stranger. Now what does that say about whether we're being controlled by the Spirit of God or, the, or by the flesh? What does that say? Let, let the actions speak for themselves. What does that say about us? We'd sooner go to someone that we ought to be praying for and bearing their burdens and loving them and nitpick them apart and criticize them and be ugly towards them. We ought to do good unto all men. You ought to do good to the drunkard on the street, to the prostitute on the corner. You, you ought to do good to the, to the God-hater and to the infidel and the Christ-hater. You ought to do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. It ought to put us to shame that we ever have problems with a church family. Now, I mean, we're, we're, we're flesh, we're, we're rotten, we're unrighteous, we're sinful. There's always going to be problems. You get, you get a group of people together, they'll find something to fuss about. I know that. But it ought to convict us. It ought to convict us that there's times that we've treated our brothers and sisters in Christ worse than we would a total stranger. Grace wouldn't do that. Grace doesn't treat your, your friends like an enemy. Grace treats your enemies like your friends. Grace doesn't, doesn't throw rocks at the person that's fallen and made mistakes. Grace says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. We ought to learn to live and operate in grace. I believe it changed the way that we live, don't you?